Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Joint HTA in Europe. Big discussion already since many, many years, but now since January 2018, so already as well, roughly three years ago when that podcast series was basically recorded, um, the European Commission has as well recommended how this could look like in the different European countries. But maybe giving a kind of recap and then also getting a bit into a discussion how such a system could really be implemented potentially then in Europe. Important maybe before going into the details, it's also something which kept really into my mind when I was speaking with different stakeholders of the German healthcare system, that one of a regional payer, a quite high member of the board there and also member of the GBA, said after a discussion I had with him personally, that at the end of the day, if something was ready published and recommended by the European Commission, it will ultimately as well be implemented. It's then only the question how and not so much if. So let's just go back. Overall, there's already a quite long history in a way of European-wide uniform HTAs, and that was especially basically through the so-called EU NETA network, um, which has been, I would call it, only moderately successful. I think there were some quite interesting and also quite insightful reports by the Oineta network. But I think to my perspective, and that's probably also a bit from the decision-making slash industry perspective, it took probably just a too long way until such kind of reports were available. Independent. I think an important consideration here is quite clearly that at the end of 2020, the project funding from the European Union inevitably ended and hence such a kind of support, financial support of that uh, joint HTA on a, let's say, common basis for the different countries uh, needs to be basically changed. I think that was quite clearly that such a kind of um, change in terms of financing, budgeting needs to have a kind of follow-up. And I think the kind of idea from the policymakers here as well uh, was quite clearly that this needs to be put into a different perspective. So how does it look like now? The current kind of idea of the European Commission is also quite clearly the, the, the goal of it is to have an efficient and sustainable cooperation between the national HDA institutions. So in a broader sense, obviously, um, as obviously an HDA institution could be something quite independent, uh, which is more maybe located at a university. But I think what we mean here probably clearly, and that's also I think the idea and the interpretation from the European Commission is that different decision makers and support to the decision makers, such as the ICWIC in Germany, for example, um, are then working together. 
The idea is clearly, and that is also the proposed regulation by the commission, for that this EU-wide kind of cooperation is binding, and it might means clearly that it's binding for the benefit assessment of the health technologies. So meaning the clinical assessment should be done on a European level. So maybe translating that as well in terms of the kind of current situation, currently the different countries in Europe are doing their own um, direct health technology assessment, especially also from a clinical perspective. Take the economic part away because that is very different between the various countries with basically no economic assessment but a negotiation in Germany down to the point that you have at least partly health economics included in some countries such as the Netherlands or also partly I think what you can also discuss about it in Italy at least on a regional level. So the idea is basically to have a sustainable cooperation between the national HDA institutions in the countries under the leadership of the European Commission and that is basically clearly to have a, a kind of roof in a way of a health technology assessment coordination group of the member states. So I think that's maybe also a bit of a question later on for the discussion um, that the different member states are mandating different institutions, for example, working on that upper European level together with other institutions on the benefit assessment, which is then binding for the member states. But the rest of it, so everything which comes afterwards, which is especially, let's call it more broader, the health economics, but this would also mean not only the budget impact, maybe in brackets, uh, cost effectiveness, where applicable, um, but also, for example, the epidemiology, the unmet medical need, I think, and a couple of further things. And clearly and finally, also the price finding, meaning the price negotiation, which is also looking differently in the various countries. I think that's the kind of idea currently. And that's, I think, also where the current discussions look for. I think there are clear opportunities, I think, um, to make that also, let's say, a bit attractive. I think uh, for the pharmaceutical industry, it could potentially mean a faster market access European-wide, but also quite clearly, I mean, the more you have in common, let's say, for all of those member states, and if you have a negative opinion suddenly, of the whole market is basically closed. Whereas we have seen in various indications, just take the diabetes um, examples with the Clipton's, where let's say the market is, or let's say it was very difficult in Germany, but the product was already early on available, for example, in France, but also when the UK was still in, in, included in the European Union, also in the UK. So that is, uh, I think, uh, the two sides of the coin. But I think ultimately, I think that is at least one of the kind of ideas of an, uh, of an opportunity of such European unified HTA effort. Other things are quite clearly, I think it's it's reducing the effort for national HTA, so reducing the double work, let's say, as obviously um, the industry would have needed to submit various um, dossiers to all of the different countries, sometimes with very similar kind of um, kind of uh, content uh, from a benefit assessment perspective. And that would also mean that this is, uh, let's say, reduced resources and reduced costs, which is then quite clearly um, an important benefit for the industry. 
I think important also here maybe that the HTA instruments might converge over time between the different health technology assessment bodies, which might also be a kind of idea, especially when we think about more Europe, um, which would also mean that not only the different, let's say, economic markets per se might come or are already quite closely together, but also the healthcare market should maybe converge towards a more European approach. On the other hand, you have as well the kind of critiques, um, especially maybe from also different um, current decision makers. I think um, quite broadly, I think uh, the head association of the Statute of Health Insurance Funds in Germany, but also others across Europe have quite clearly criticized um, that they are very high, at least from their perspective, highly respected and, and, and high quality kind of methods being applied in, the, in their process might be undermined by a common European approach, especially maybe compared to other countries where potentially the kind of quality applied there in terms of methods as well might be difficult. On top of that, I think just imagine there are different kind of standards, treatment standards, just from a clinical perspective in the different countries. So it's also very difficult how to do such a kind of clinical benefit assessment across and between the different countries. I mean, there might be a different kind of standard of care, for example, in northern of Germany versus southern of France versus maybe somewhere in Netherlands and maybe at a rural clinic in Romania, for example. So just to show a bit the kind of heterogeneity, which might be also a kind of difficulty also in terms of method to be used in the um, joint HDA across Europe. So this is the kind of approach. Independently of that, I just want to, co to come back to what I said very early on, to, um, what, uh, where I quoted one of those decision makers in the German system who just said, it's not a question if it comes, it's more the question how it will be implemented. And um, when going through the different healthcare systems across the world, it's very difficult to find a role model there. But there might be one. And that is also one of the topics and discussions for today, and that is the healthcare system in Canada. Canada already as well consists of various provinces, and with those provinces can basically as well interact, not wholly independently as in Europe, but they have there as well decision freedom, let's say. And there was as well a bit of a, a kind of similar kind of approach as we have, as we're now seeing in Europe to have a joint benefit assessment on a national level, and that was introduced in 2002. So there was already maybe some learnings from there, because nowadays it's, it's also in that way that um, on a national basis, you can first do the benefit assessment, but then ultimately the whole kind of price negotiations, the agreements and everything can then be achieved on a province level. So which is, at least from my perspective, a potential role model for the European Union. Let's go into the discussion now with one of, a, of the Canadian experts to also understand more about the learnings from Canada and also where potentially the kind of, let's say, issues might have arised from that joint um, approach in Canada. Good. Thank you, Gabriel, for joining our discussion today, which is especially more, let's say, from a joint HTA perspective in Europe. But... You as a Canadian expert, obviously we want to learn more about the Canadian system and especially also how we could potentially use your experience in Canada with respect to a joint HGA across a full 
let's say, region in general. So maybe just very briefly, I think if you could start and just describe um, how the current market access or reimbursement pathway uh, look like in Canada. Yeah, I'll just very briefly introduce myself so your viewers can, can know a, a little bit about what I do for a living. So I'm a health economist. Uh, I have an undergrad and a master in health economics and a doctorate in health technology assessment. So I have been working in the past 12 years, uh, mostly in submissions around the world, but a lot in Canada. Uh, about 50% of what I do in, is for Canada, and I live in Canada here in Quebec province. And uh, most of my work is to produce economic models for submissions or to create the economic submissions, but I'm obviously involved in all the different steps of the reimbursement and the submissions in Canada, which include the PNPRB, NS Cadet, and PCPA uh, in general. Uh, so just as an overview of, so to answer your question more specifically, um, basically the current market access and reimbursement pathway in Canada let's say from the beginning down to the patient, uh, would start obviously with Health Canada, a little bit like what you have in EU, right? Or in the US. Uh, Health Canada is a much smaller agency than what you guys have with the EMA or with the FDA. They are often uh, influenced a little bit, not, not politically, but in terms of looking at the evidence generated by other agencies, they're sometimes influenced by what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, Health Canada will always come after the FDA in most cases, uh, and normally about the same time as the EMA, but generally after the FDA. Uh, and so obviously they will read what's happening in the rest of the world. Once this is done, uh, basically the, the companies can sell their product to the private uh, healthcare system. So a large proportion of the, the patients in Canada are going to be covered by private insurance. Uh, which which is mostly for people that work, okay? So when you work in Canada, most of the, the time, you're going to have a drug insurance plan. So about 50, 60% of the population is covered by these drug, uh, private drug insurance plan. But we can appreciate that these people are active population. They're not the sickest people around. Uh, most of the sicker patients are going to be covered by the public plans, uh, and or are going to be a little bit older than 65, which is when they're going to be covered by the public drug, drug plan in any case when, when they get retired. Uh, so what happens uh, after Health Canada approves a drug, uh, the PMPRB, which is the agency that puts a maximum price on each of the product, the, the PMPRB is going to determine what is your maximum price. It's going to most likely start almost at the same time as your cadet submission, Normally a little bit faster, historically a little bit faster, uh, but almost at the same time as the cadet submission. So once you're you're in negotiation with the PMPRB, you're also going to start talking to cadet to discuss to have your pre-submission meeting, and then you're going to do your submission, your actual HTA submission to cadet and Ines. Cadet is is taking care of all the different provinces except Quebec province which has its own HTA uh, review process, which is within Innis. Uh, so we basically have two HTA bodies in Canada. It's CADET and, and Innis. Uh, once, you're, once you get a recommendation, a positive recommendation from CADET or Innis, one or the other or both, right? 
you're going to go through what we call the PCPA, which is the nego- the price negotiation body. So all the provinces uh, actually created a group that is called the PCPA. They created it in 2010, but it became a bigger uh, thing in 2016 when Quebec and the federal programs joined the PCPA. Uh, basically, you're going to submit and negotiate with the PCPA after CADET recommended you on the clinical aspect and, and maybe uh, recommended a price adjustment on the economic aspect, you're going to negotiate with the PCPA at that point, And they are going to determine the price that you're going to have in Canada. This price must be lower that, than the PMPRB price. So what we mentioned earlier, the PMPRB basically sets your maximum price and the PCPA is going to actually set your listing price. So that's a negotiated price. Before the PCPA, each province is used to negotiate their own price. Uh, now, now they do it as a group, and Quebec is included in that group. So basically, every single province and every fed- federal program, including the First Nation and the Veteran Affairs, are negotiated one-time negotiation uh, for the price in Canada. Once this is done, you still have to get listed at the provincial level. In the meantime, the provincial listing is not as much of an issue, obviously, because you already had your recommendation from CADET and Ennis, and then you negotiated with these, with every province, including the province you want to get listed. You negotiated through the PCPA for a specific price. So once this is done, you still need to get the reimbursement at the province, but normally in most cases, it's going to be just a formality to submit the documentation and then get listed on on the public formulary for each of the province. You still need to get listed by the province because just as a note, in Canada, uh, health or healthcare is a provincial responsibility. So even though Canada is a confederation, it's a country, uh, Canada does not manage the healthcare system of each of the provinces. Each province is responsible for their own healthcare uh, system and the healthcare of their population. The country is responsible for some programs like the one I mentioned before. So the prisons, First Nation, the veterans, they are responsible for a small proportion of the population, but most of the people are taken care of by their own province. So in a way, provinces are almost like small country because they have they have their independence in terms of providing healthcare and dispensing healthcare to their own population. And Canada, CADET as an example, is doing an evaluation for all of Canada, if you want, if you, if you include Innes as a separate body, and, and then the provinces have to make their own decision. So it's not a federal decision, it is a recommendation that comes from the federal, and it's a provincial decision at the end. Okay, very interesting. I think um, it looks already at some parts, I think, like I think uh, we currently have the discussions within Europe. I think also maybe having more kind of recommendation, uh, let's say, um, European-wide. I think uh, for you, it was then more national, on a national kind of basis. I think um, maybe before we come back to the kind of learnings um, when that system was, was as well introduced in Canada, I'm also a bit interested because you just said, I think there is a that sort of kind of group price negotiation, I think um, on a more yeah. kind of national level, right? Before it goes to the provincial level, I think which is quite interesting because as you as well said, I think the provinces, or let's say it's the responsibility of the provinces to take care of health. So how, how does that really 
work. I mean, it, I can hardly believe that it's really also that easy from that perspective to find a group price and not also going to negotiation with normally just one company, which has obviously just one strategy and one idea versus then a lot of different kind of uh, directions potentially from the different provinces. How, 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 how did that basically evolve? Was there an involvement or were there still kind of issues currently being seen? Yeah, so there was quite a bit of evolution in, in the past years. Obviously, the, the history of CADET goes a long way. But if you go back to basically when it really started in 2002, this was a very small office. It was not even called an agency. It was called an office. And in 2006, that's really when you start seeing uh, the agency appearing. So that's when it took it, its current name, CADET, uh, and basically became an agency. That's, that's the term they give to it in the Canadian government. And basically, from that point, they really started assessing the product. So that's on the HTA side. They started assessing the product and slowly gaining importance across Canada. One of the problems that we were still seeing in between 2006 and 2010, but we could even say 2006 to 2016, because the PCPA only included Quebec in 2015 and the federal programs in 2016. So it became very important that the pricing uh, committee, uh, the PCPA, really became important really around 2015, 2016. Uh, so in that 10 years between the creation of CADET and the pricing negotiation PCPA uh, committee, what happened is we were seeing that the, the Canadian, the CADET, the agency would actually recommend the listing, right? So we recommend the listing. Then it goes to the province. At that point, it was going directly to the province. And the province could decide, uh, let's, okay, I'm going to list this one. And the other province would decide, ah, I'm not going to list this one because it's too expensive. So you would still have a lot of inequalities, if you want, in terms of access between one province and the other. <clears throat> so Canada is a country, right? So you sometimes live very close to the next province. So you could say, you know, 20 minutes from here, they have access to this oncology product. But here in my city, I don't have access to it because it's not covered by my province. <clears throat> so this was seen as fairly unfair between the provinces. Canada cannot do so much, okay? There's a limit to what they can do because as I said, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. So they cannot really accept, you know, maybe paying for everything. They, they wouldn't be able to really change the mind of the province on the listing of a specific product just because it's, it's a provincial responsibility. So what the province decided to do so, in light of having such a big discrepancies in the access of the product, they, they had to identify what were the main reasons for these discrepancies. <clears throat> and one of the big reasons was pricing differences between one province and the other. <clears throat> As an example, Ontario with about half of, the, almost half of the population of Canada, it's around 40% of the population of Canada, was able to negotiate some pretty good deal, pretty decent deal with these pharmaceutical companies because they were able to actually use their size and the volume to tell the pharmaceutical companies that they're gonna get a good price because of their size. But some other provinces, such as, most of the provinces are very small, small by the way. We have many provinces, you know, less than 4 million is a pretty typical number, 4 million people. So many of the Atlantic provinces, as an example, are very, very small. Some of the Western provinces are also very small, even though they are large in size, they are very small in population. So 
to it they they don't do not have this capacity to negotiate the price with with these pharmaceutical companies uh, and basically the pharmaceutical companies could be more interested in the bigger market such as uh, British Columbia such as Quebec and Ontario if you cover these three provinces you basically cover most of the population of Canada uh, so what happened is by merging all these provinces in, inside one committee that can actually negotiate prices they are gaining a lot of capacity to negotiate the price so it's to the advantage of ontario because instead of being just their own population now they can be in this group that represents the 37 38 million people that lives in canada so it creates a lot of power for these provinces to negotiate at one time with the pharmaceutical companies so far pharma needs to show up and actually they have one chance of negotiating properly this deal and if they get it they have large volume if they don't get it the pcpa can decide to limit their access quite significantly uh, especially if it's a hospital product if it's a hospital product basically it's only public right because the drug plan the private drug plans only cover uh mostly the population that is using drug outside of the hospital these are uh, just the general population the working population for anything that is in the hospital like oncology as an example there's only one payer in canada it's it's the government it's each of the provinces so this one you have one shot to negotiate at the pcpa so this created such a, a cohesion between all of the different provinces where now they can negotiate their price together negotiate the criteria to limit the use of the drug in certain cases and they become much more powerful than the pharma in a way whereas before the pcpa small provinces like uh new brunswick prince edward island and all these smaller provinces newfoundland wouldn't have such a, a power to negotiate with with the pharmaceutical companies uh, and so i believe this is probably one of the largest uh largest event of the past decade in terms of Canadian HTA it's really the capacity to negotiate the price uh in this committee that includes all the province uh, it's it probably has more impact in a way than the cadet recommendation uh because really it's 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 allowing the provinces to get access to product at a fair and decent price where before there would be a lot of inequalities between the provinces Yeah that that makes a lot of sense absolutely i think also especially i mean when you i think uh, clearly laid out let's say the differences also in terms of population size between the different provinces i mean that that that's probably also keeping in mind i mean if you as a pharmaceutical company you would try to launch a product you would obviously and that's what we see also with other countries um first of all target the big populations in order to also make some revenues and also obviously you're much more open to give maybe a quite attractive deal to those kind of um countries with its uh, more better sized kind of population um whereas obviously this might have uh, been an issue with smaller kind of provinces and Canada. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think some of that I can also foresee maybe for some of the smaller countries in Europe uh, but probably not not so much and probably not not for all but it explains a lot how it basically went into the kind of joint price negotiation which is an interesting move as well. I mean in In Europe I think we're still probably at least two steps before that. 
<laughs> so maybe if possible, could we turn back still a bit into the year 2002? I think my understanding was that the new HTA system, and you have as well just briefly explained it, was implemented around that time. Could you, if possible, explain any kind of issues, any discussions which happened around that year and, and maybe even the rationale why it was then also implemented in 2002. Maybe it was the same as for the pricing, but just that you could maybe wrap it up if we go back to the year 2002. Uh, before this process, uh, you would need to do, uh, you would need to go to each and every drug plan in Canada. And there was 19 drug review process in Canada. So that's how they called it, 19 drug review processes and you had to submit to each of these processes, you had to get your review, you had to submit your clinical section, economic section, uh, you had to, then once you're approved or not, with limitation, without limitation, you would have to negotiate a price with each of these different plan, and then you would need to get the recommendation from the ministry to get listed, listed on, on, the, on the list of each of these provinces. So that's 19 different negotiations that have to go uh, side by side. And obviously, uh, this this became this was really big, right? So this is a very large responsibilities for pharma. So most of the time, what they would do is they would pick the market that they would prefer to go first. So they would go to Ontario first, Quebec, and and then at some point they would do British Columbia. Uh, in 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 the in 2002, the population of the West was even smaller than now. Population of Atlantic was pretty much similar. So. They, there were very small provinces and two big provinces, basically Quebec and Ontario. So these market people would go there first and then they would wait a little bit and see for the other province and slowly try to increase access across all provinces. What you would also see before that specific cadet is having very, very different recommendation between one province and the other. So one province could get an approval on the clinical aspect uh, and an approval on the economic aspect as other certain price. And the other province just right next to it would get a rejection on the clinical aspect. So how can this drug be good enough for one Canadian, but not recommended clinically speaking for the other Canadian? It created some inconsistencies in terms of, of access and in terms of review process for every Canadians. So the goal was to pull these 19 public drug, drug review processes together. So at the beginning, Quebec said that they're not going to be part of this process for different reasons and potentially funding reason at the federal level. Quebec has some special status because of the way this province is managed and the fact that they speak French and they have some special uh, criteria over there for decision making. So they determined from the beginning that they wouldn't be in the Canadian process. But the other 18 drug review pro uh, processes decided to merge into one, one big review process that would be called the CDR back then and later on became, uh, be, became the, the, the cadet. Uh, and so that was the original intention. Uh, the provinces back then, if you go back to the beginning of CADET, the provinces retained some health economics and HTA capabilities. They still had a few economists, if you want. They still had a few HTA experts working for them. So CADET would produce a recommendation. They would send it. And there, remember that there's always 
provincial uh, advisors that sit on cadet committee, right? So the provinces can send advisors on, on, their, on the committee. But e even with these advisors, cadet would produce a document, send it to the province. The province would retain some form of HDA capabilities, and then they would approve it or not. But with time, this provincial capability to actually do the review decreased because CADET became a lot more structured, be, uh, started doing very, very robust analysis uh, and, and having a lot more health economists, having a lot of HT expert, SLR expert, et cetera, their capabilities became so overwhelming that actually the provinces reduced in terms of internal HTA capabilities and started relying mostly on CADET, uh, which now is really driving the recommendation and the, the drug plans are mostly deciding if they list or not, but they won't do an other than Innes, which is in Quebec, other than Innes, the other provinces and plans are not going to do their own analysis, their own very complex analysis to determine if they should list or not. They're going to rely on the federal recommendation, which is from CAVIT. Okay, that was that was very, very interesting. I mean, just to listen also how all of that basically evolved. And I could see as well some of those discussions and maybe also potential far future kind of involvements uh, maybe as well in, in Europe. Um, I mean, you have now summarized it and you have obviously, let's say, lived all of those kind of changes in the last years. Could you have any learnings where you would say, this is something I would recommend if I would need to advise, for example, a region such as Europe or any other kind of region, just uh, who wants maybe to especially establish something similar, let's call it, as in Canada. So especially maybe thinking about the, let's say, steps in order to have that maybe, and I'm also interested in that, in that kind of opinion, in that quite efficient way of doing HTA across a bigger kind of country. Yeah, I think there, there could be some learnings from, from all of this experience in Canada. Well, first, it's taking quite a bit of time to actually start from having nothing and growing into something that is really comprehensive. And, and so obviously you, you could not Im implement this in just one or two years in Europe. This is a, this is a really big, uh, really big uh, implementation process that they had to go through. Another thing that is important, I think, a learning is that they had to go through phases, okay? So they they started small and they grew phase by phase and trying to add on top of what already existed before and not necessarily trying to do everything all at once. So they really implemented this by phase. It might be just a fact of history that it happened because they didn't know what was the next step. But if you look at it looked like it was a strategy to do it by phase. Maybe it was, maybe it was not a strategy. But what we can see is it works better if you take it a little bit slower and you slowly implement these changes. And this, this led to today having a Canadian healthcare system that is a lot more equal than it used to be. Uh, and the government, the public programs having a lot more power than what they used to be in terms of negotiating the prices, et cetera, okay? So incremental changes really had uh, a lot of impact here instead of doing everything at once, and then many provinces would just feel that they have nothing to do with this. Going slowly made it certain that all the plans would, would go with, with the whole of Canada, except Innes, obviously here.
So uh, another important aspect here is the federal, anything that happens at the federal level does not stop the provinces from making their own decision. Okay, so provinces are technically independent and for healthcare are responsible for their the healthcare of their population. Uh, and so this, there was no attempt at the federal level or no real clear decision to try to impede the decision-making process of provinces. What they do is they complement and they add information. They give more documentation. They give this national capability to perform health technology assessment with CADET having, you know, many, many health economists and, and a lot of HTA and SLR experts and expert, expert at the clinical level and the capacity of CADET to create key opinion leaders and, and clinician groups that can assess drugs and, and new medicine. Their capacity to do that is a lot bigger than even the pooled capabilities of all the provinces. So this really creates uh, a big help for the provinces without impeding their capacity to make the right decision for their own population. Okay, so it's just support, but it's really powerful and good support for these provinces. And that's why they slowly start decreasing their own capabilities because they believe in what CADET can do for them is probably better than they could do for themselves. Okay, so that's a good example of, even though it's not centralization, it's definitely not centralization. It's basically federal support for all the different provinces to make the right decision uh, for technology reimbursement. Okay, another, another aspect that I think is important to mention is this increased capabilities and the large number of resource that CADET can, can put into an analysis make these recommendations a lot faster. So CADET can recommend and create analysis for certain technology a lot faster than, than a province could do. Okay, province could not assemble a team as big as what CADET can do to assess no novel technologies. And really that's probably creating a more rapid market access process for, uh, for, for the drugs, for new technologies. So you get access to your population faster by having this joint capabilities at the top, okay? Uh, another, another very important aspect and learning from the Canadian experience is the fact that actually the PCPA, so price negotiation and actually pooling the negotiation power of all these provinces was probably one of the most important event in the past decade in terms of health technology assessment for Canadians. Uh, and really, this creates capabilities to not only, so CADET creates the capability to bring the medicine faster, the right medicine faster to the population, but PCPA allows us to bring it at a fair and decent price to everybody with, you know, as much as we can equality in terms of access between the different provinces. So I, I think these are probably the big learnings from Canada. Okay, yeah, I think that that's probably something we should as well forward to some of the European and also countries uh, um, within Europe. I mean, just to take that as well on board. I mean, there's still a bit 
let's say, reluctance even to discuss those kind of, let's say, efforts. But I think you described it, I think, quite nicely. I think um, what the drivers were also in Canada in terms of access, especially maybe to the smaller provinces. I think that's also something we can see here in Europe with some smaller countries. But I think also more the kind of, let's say, debate, whether it's more centralization. I think that was as well a very interesting kind of learning, what you have just described, that this is not so much centralization, but it's really more support for the different, let's say, provinces or for Europe, it's maybe then more on a country level in order to give basically everybody a quite fast uh, opportunity to have access to basically all of the different drugs which are then available. I think that was very fascinating, at least uh, to me. I think um, that is probably a lot of learnings I think also Europeans can take from Canada here. And let's just see how these things might evolve over time also here in Europe and uh, maybe also if European health politicians might also have a deeper look into the Canadian healthcare system and the involvement in the last yeah roughly 20-25 years over there to see what we can basically then as well learn for Europe. Thank you Gabriel that was very interesting that was very great thanks for the insights uh, so let's just see how these things will as well evolve and maybe also involvement in Canada. As we all know, healthcare uh, is never the same when you look back a couple of years. So let's just see what will happen there as well. Yeah, sure. Looking forward to talk again. So how the whole kind of joint HCA will really also evolve now in Europe, I think is still a bit of a question mark. But I think what we have now heard as well from Canada, I think there were also big debates at the very early beginnings there. And we just need to see how those kind of things might as well evolve over time um, in Europe. I think generally we have had as well a couple of discussions already early on. I mean, I have as well been heading a roundtable discussion together with my uh, groups uh, and colleagues out of the European group, Madvans. And for example, Dr. Inaki Imat said as well, harmonization understood as a core competency of the European Commission. I think when we have that in mind, it's also very similar to what I personally have as well seen and heard from different payers across Europe that this will come and it will evolve. But I think it's still maybe the same kind of discussion as we have as well just heard in Canada that the responsibility of healthcare and ultimately then the healthcare budget still relies in Europe with the individual countries. So let's just see how this will really go and how this is as well then going into the kind of direction I think the European Commission really sees for. I think also quite very important, I think Flora Giorgio said as well during that already mentioned um, roundtable discussions, uh, 30 years ago nobody believed that a harmonized regulatory framework could work at all. Why should the clinical assessment within a joint HCA not also be a successful story? So let's just take that as well as a potential kind of um, breakthrough in terms of thinking how we could probably then as well make that happen. Probably and very similar to what we have as well just learned from Canada, nothing in the short run, but it's, I think, worthwhile to think about, to think about broader in European perspective and also understand and maybe even pave the way that one day in future, maybe not in five years, maybe in 10 years, maybe even in 15 years, we have really a joint healthcare system on a kind of way or in a way as we see it now as well in Canada with still individual countries, with still individual responsibility for the budget, but that we have somewhere a kind of harmonization, at least from a clinical assessment perspective, that we can also make 
drugs even better and faster and probably also more efficiently available within Europe. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.